we'll jump into this conversation this week, or this teaching anyway. Lord, I thank you for uh, what you give us. And I'm, Lord, these are such short moments to try to get at the profoundness, the reality of you, infinite God, and the reality of the knowledge you've given us. And um, so I pray for myself this morning that I will be able to try to communicate as clearly and simply as I can, Lord. And I pray for my brothers and sisters as they transform their minds. And in some ways, some of this stuff may feel new, even though it's ancient from the beginning of time. So I thank you for this, Lord, and I look forward to um, our hearts wanting to worship as we understand who you've made us to be, who you are, and um, this world you've put us in. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, as I've started last week, I feel kind of like this daunting task to take something that we could take a semester or two and try to unpack, and I'm doing it in just a few weeks. And so this is my second week. I'm going to miss next week, and then I'll be back a third week. And we're having this conversation about worldview, and we're putting it in the middle of a a, a Sunday school on evangelism. Okay, And, and there's a lot more that could be said about worldview, but to understand the world we're swimming in and understand why this is valuable in our communication of the gospel, I hope by the end of next week, or when I come back two weeks from now, somehow some of those loose ends that may even feel loose now will be able to be pulled together, though I'm trying to pull them together all along the way, okay? So remember <clears throat> what we began to talk about last week, and I'm going to just go through some quick slides quickly. We, we began this idea of worldview. It's a, it's a mental model. It's a lens a framework by which we understand our world. It's fundamental commitments of our heart. And uh, a big point tonight that you'll see, or today, is that we may hold it consciously or unconsciously, and it may be consistent or inconsistent. But the, the reality is most people just absorb it. So we come to faith in Christ, but we come from a world, and we bring that world with us, and we don't even know it. And I'm not talking about, in this class, I'm not talking about just moral things. We, we tend to think, well, yeah, we know these moral issues you're not supposed to be involved in. But that's not entirely what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a way of thinking. It's a worldview. And so what we talked about last night is that the value of this is there's a number of things. But first of all, God commands us to have a transformation of our mind. It's discipleship. To begin to think how God wants me to think. Okay? That's just first and foremost. And it actually leads you to worship. When you realize the world you're in, who God is, who you are, and actually even the knowledge he gives us, it blows your mind. It actually blows your mind. The second thing, then, is to see the world, and I brought this up before, and this is one of those little loose end issues, but when you begin to understand what God has given us, it becomes the ruler, you could say the lens, the ruler, however you want to look at it. It becomes the measuring stick by which you measure everything else. So a simple example would be two plus two is four, right? This is all so simple. You can go anywhere in the world, anywhere in time, and two plus two is four. So what happens if somebody comes in and says, but you don't understand? I've been studying this for 13 years, and I've written two books, and it's 1,177. That's what 2 plus 2 is. You'd say, there's no way. I don't care how many books, I don't care how long you've studied, 2 plus 2 is 4. You see, once you know that, everything else stands out going, it can't be right. I don't even know your argument, but it can't be right. That's how this works. That's why this is such valuable stuff. And then, thirdly, it helps you communicate to a culture. Now, I didn't want to take a lot of time this morning, but I want to tell you just one to maybe prompt you as we're working through this so you'll hang with me and let your brains be transformed by the Word of God. Uh, I, I have, so we had six children, one passed away as a baby, and then we raised five, and they're each on their own journeys. 
But my youngest one was a fascinating story because when she was 14, we went through this family crisis. Just, some of you know our life story. A few of you do, some of you don't. But she was only 14 when this crisis happened in our family, and God did something in her where she just immersed herself in the Word of God and old dead guys at 14. It was amazing to watch. And she had us paint a wall in her bedroom as a blackboard. It's like six foot wide, eight foot tall. And every day I'd go in there, there were verses written all over that thing and old dead guy quotes, and she'd want to watch movies with me and analyze stuff. And you got to know her. She's like the, I don't want to put words on somebody, right? But like she's the millennial, creative, hipster, little cute chick. Okay? You meet her, she does photography, she travels internationally, does photography. She just loves to have this creative stuff. So you don't see her as this girl that sits behind closed doors and is some academic bookworm person. That's just not her. So uh, through that family crisis, we homeschooled our kids, and there were just a couple areas we felt like we wished we would have done better with her. So I asked her, I said, would you take a couple years, you know, graduating from high school, but take a couple years and do some liberal arts at, at JUCO? Oh, Dad, I don't want to do that. I'm like, I really think it would be good for us as a family to feel like we filled in a couple little holes that maybe we didn't do a good job. Okay. And I want you to do one thing for me. I want you to take philosophy, introduction to philosophy. Oh, you've got to be kidding me. And I'm like, no, I know you. I've watched you for four years, and I think it's going to be an incredible experience for you. So please just do that, just for me. I'll talk to you right through the whole class. Okay. She was in that class two weeks, and I get a text from her that's like an essay. And, of course, I'm a dad, so I can put the inflection in it. Dad, every Christian should take this. This is unbelievable. I'm listening to these ancient genius guys, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. Do you think they met God? Like, they're following all the breadcrumbs. And the amazing thing is they get right to the doorway, and I know what's on the other side of the door, and they don't. I know what they're talking about, and, and I know the answer. And they don't. This is an 18-year-old little girl. She says, the answer is Jesus Christ. It's the gospel. It's the truth. It's theology. I said, exactly. Like, they're following truth of the world, a corresponding world. They're following these breadcrumbs, and they come right to this place. And it's God on the other side of that door. Every single time. And she's like, I see it. I'm sitting in a class. And then the other thing that was striking, this was six or seven years ago, she came home one night, and remember we're talking worldview, answering all these questions of life. What is ultimate reality? How do you know something? What is a person? Well, in philosophy, you study what is a person. She said, I'm in this class, and she said, Dad, virtually every person in that class is talking about anxiety, talking about depression, because they don't know who they are. They don't know their identity. This is before. We're seeing the big wave now, right? Got guys thinking they're girls, girls thinking they're guys, and we don't know. They're all confused. They don't understand identity. And she says, it's crazy. I'm sitting in the class. I've never even thought about the question. I go to bed at night, and I know who I am. I'm a woman creating the image of God, and I'm a daughter of the king. She says, I don't even worry about it. I have no stress over this. She says, I couldn't believe that all these students, all my fellow students in this class, are completely confused about this. Now, she didn't have to go study deep philosophy and anthropology to have the answer. She knew two plus two was four, and when she's sitting there watching this, she's going, something's crazy. That's how it works. When God speaks and he gives us the truth, it becomes the grid by which we can see everything else right down to an 18-year-old little millennial girl. Doesn't have to argue it, doesn't have to complain. She just knows that that's wrong. Make sense? Now imagine how she can communicate to those gals in those classes. She understands their plight. She understands what they're struggling with, and she can step right in there and say, oh, I have the answer. 
evangelism. You see why worldview is so valuable? Right down to a teenage kid. So I, I say that to you on the front end, not to talk about my daughter. It's always sort of makes you nervous because that's not the point. The point is I want you to see how valuable this is. But some of you are older going, why are we doing this? I want you to see the value, okay? So let's skip through. We, we're answering these questions, ultimate reality. This is what you have to do with your worldview. How can we know anything at all? Something rather than nothing. What is a human being? Origins, destiny. I know I'm going fast through this because I'm going to get to a point today. Meaning purpose, okay? You want something that corresponds to the real world. Now, the big thing I want to talk about is two things today. One is presuppositions, okay? Presuppositions. Every human being has, a pre- has presuppositions. They're things you come to the table with. And I've been bringing this simple one up. I'm talking to you right now with words, so I have a presupposition that you guys know what I think. You know what I'm saying. Fundamentally, you know what I'm saying, see? I'm not making an argument for words. I'm not making an argument for language. I just assume it. We all do this. Every human being, every person you've ever met just assumes certain things when they come to the table and have a conversation. Does that make sense? Are you with me on that? That's called a presupposition. And you have to think about what are my fundamental presuppositions? What are these things I take for granted that are pre-commitments that I come to the table with? And we should, as we become a Christian, as we come to faith in Christ, we have to begin to think this way. And some of this is just given to us because the Holy Spirit comes in us and begins to illumine the Word of God. And I'll show you in a minute. And I want to get through all that. But think of presuppositions. I like to think of it as a, a domino effect. And I've been saying this in here, and again, it's something that you're not, probably some of you aren't so sure about yet. And it's okay because I know it's a new way to think for, for many of you. Doesn't mean you're dumb, just you haven't thought about it. It's like a domino effect. Everything I believe today is because I believe something before that. And because I believe something before that. Before, I believe three things before that. That's how I got to here. And sooner or later, if you go all the way back, you've got to come to the first domino. You've got to come to a beginning point. And that beginning point is the ultimate reality that put everything else in motion. And you have to do that sooner or later. Most of us don't sit around and do it, right? Most of us don't think that way. But that's what's going on. And that first domino is what ultimate reality is. And here's the interesting thing. It has to be self-existent, meaning there's nothing before it. It has to just be there. And actually, we take it by faith. We trust that it's there. Now, I'm going to get to that today when we talk about faith, because that's the great confusion in our culture. It isn't faith like some blind nothing. It's reasonable to have that kind of faith. But you do take it by faith. And here's the issue. Everybody does this. It's not just the religious person. It's not just the Christian. Everybody does this. The ardent atheist, secularist, materialist, or postmodernist has to do this. And if you track back, they're going to have a beginning point that they're starting their conversation with. And for us, the answer is, the personal infinite triune God is actually there. Like, there is a real God there, not the word, not the idea, not the concept. There's actually something there. That's what I've been telling you. A is A, A is not non-A. There's actually an A there that starts the whole thing. Okay? And this true God speaks. He communicates with man. And if we go through quickly, just rethink of all the creation and all the stuff in the scriptures, the ultimate reality, the I am, right? Created all things to reflect himself. Genesis 1.31, he saw all that he made it. Behold, it was very good. He created man in his image to reflect God. Created man in his image, remember this? God revealed, communicated knowledge that man can reflect the knowledge of God. He actually communicated with Adam and said, hey, here's how things work. We are to think God's 
thoughts after him. He said, here's how it works. Adam says, oh, okay, that's how it works. Boom. God says, two plus two is four. Oh, Adam says, oh, two plus two is four. It's really simple. God communicates. He spoke all things into existence. Genesis 1-3. This didn't even think it. He spoke it. Fascinating. He spoke all things into existence. He communicates. He communicated with Adam. The Lord commanded the man. He gave him knowledge. He said, here's the deal. Here's the garden. Here's what you're to do. He gave him real knowledge. His revelation is communication. We talked about that. We have this natural revelation. What can be known about God is evident within man, Romans 1 tells us. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. Through general revelation, he's communicating all the time. The heavens declare the glory of God. Special revelation, right? God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he spoke how? Through the Son. Special revelation, the revealing of God. God actually gives us knowledge. And supremely it came in Jesus. And what did Jesus affirm? What did these men affirm? Prophecy of Scripture. They heard the voice on the mountain. We were eyewitnesses. Declaration was made. This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. They literally heard the very voice of God. But look what they say. And we ourselves heard this declaration. And so, if you look at the text, we have the prophetic word made more sure. It means, listen, not only did that voice confirm everything we are hearing, but we have something even more sure because we can sit here and look at it and talk about it. We have the scriptures. Look, he says, we, so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well pay attention. But know, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture became, becomes as a matter of someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit. This revelation, this word that we were given, comes right from God. He speaks to us. Clearly. Okay? Now, quickly, what we're going to do in a couple of weeks when I come back is I'm going to compare the Christian worldview to the other. There's two other worldviews out there. They're both, both secular. They're both fun to have some basic fundamental sayings, but there's modernism and postmodernism. Not trying to get into that today, but I want to just tip my hand a little bit so you can see why this contrast is so important. Because what we're going to do this week is I'm just trying to emphasize the Christian worldview. Like I said, this is what you build. This is what I did with my daughter when she was, you know, 14, 15. We'd sit have a movie marathon over Lord of the Rings, and we'd be talking worldview, worldview. Every week. We even had a marathon on Rocky movies. <laughs> what's going on? What are these people thinking? How's the guy? You know, what's God's word have to say about that? Boom, boom, boom. So what is the ultimate reality for the secular mind? What is the first domino? If our first domino is the personal infinite triune God and he actually speaks, what is it for the, the, the average you know, pagan person, non-believer out there? Okay? It still has to be self-existent. It still has to be by faith. You know what their first domino is? Anybody have a clue? Secular answer, <clears throat> I think, therefore I am. This was Rene Descartes. He was saying, listen, I've got to try to figure out what the first domino is. So I doubt, and therefore I must exist in order to doubt. He figured, I'm going to doubt everything I can possibly doubt to get rid of everything off the table and finally get to this final domino. And he came to the conclusion, well, if I'm doubting, then I must be the first domino. It's the one thing I can't doubt, that I exist. And so the secular mind begins with man. Man is the beginning of all things. Man's reason is the source of all knowledge. Your social sciences today sociology, psychology, political science, it doesn't mean that they don't observe some kind of actual thing going on, a bunch of people committing suicide, or these people are starving, or they can look at the data. 
it's the interpretation that becomes a problem. Because their interpretation starts their entire theory with man. And if you start there, you will end up at a very different place than if you start with God. That's worldview. And the more you understand it, you'll say, oh, I, I can see where they started. Because you couldn't get to that point if you didn't start. If you started with God, you wouldn't get to there. And this is what's going on, and you see the cultural class, the political clash, all this stuff you guys are watching in your society. It's a worldview clash. It's a fundamental worldview that people come to the table with, and it's built on pre- these presuppositions. Last week I talked about Francis Schaeffer saying we need this full truth, and I just want to emphasize this last part as we go into this next phase this morning. He's saying we must not reduce Christianity to a modern existential upper story leap. You'll see what I mean by that. It's not just for feeling good. It's not sentimentality. We need the full biblical position to have the answer to the basic philosophical problem of existence of what is. He's simply saying we need the answer for the great question in the world. What is reality? What is? How do I explain this world? That's what these, all these philosophers are trying to figure out. And he, then he says, notice what he says, we need the full biblical content concerning God, that he is the infinite personal God and the starting place. That's why I start with presuppositions. You have to first of all figure your presupposition. From there, we begin to build how we think about reality. And that's what we're going to do now. Make sense? Okay. Did that fast. I hope you're with me. Presuppositions. I come to the table, and I already know 2 plus 2 is 4. I already know God exists, and I already know he speaks. That's a given. Done. Rested. Case done. Don't debate it. It's done. Now I go from there. Okay? Now, understanding what is God's answer. And what I'm going to show you now is the Christian way of thinking, but you're going to see the age-old dilemma. And why this is important is this age-old dilemma is all over our culture. We all come from this dilemma, and we've actually brought that dilemma even into this room and don't even know it. And I'm going to show it to you right now, okay? So it's an age-old discussion. This is just a picture. It was a great painting by Raphael. It was called The School of Athens. And in that are actually all these philosophers. And they're, they're, they're having this age-old discussion. This is what my daughter understood as she began to understand the worldview and began to study the scriptures. And she was able to walk in and go, oh, they're trying to figure this out. Okay, here's what they were trying to figure out. Now, this is where you put your thinking caps on with me. Okay, you got to think. I know it's hard. Okay? I'm not picking on anybody. This is, this is, if this is new, it'll be hard work. Okay? People, philosophers, could sit here and look at the world and say there's this, call it a circle of knowledge. And this knowledge is what some would call transcendent, metaphysical, the things beyond the physical. Okay? They would look around and they go, okay. And they would call these things universals. They would call them upper story. They would call it grace. They would call it unity. Okay? Those are just names. I'm just throwing those out to you. So one of these things would be a universal, a classic one I like to go to. Human-ness. Okay? You're a particular human. You're a particular human. You're a particular human. But in one sense, think about this. We're all very different, aren't we? We're very diverse. And yet, behind the diversity, there's a consistency. Human, human, human. And I could literally write a book about what a human is, and that would apply to you, and apply to you, and apply to you. It would apply 500 years ago. It would apply in another diverse culture. Everybody would know what a human was, even though there's all sorts of diverse uniquenesses. Where does that consistent humanness, universal, come from? 
Throw a bunch of potty parts together, shake them up in a bag, dump them out on the ground. You're not going to come up with humanness. Where does it come from? That make sense? That's the transcendent. Now, in that, you start getting into things existential. This is experience. These are things that I can't pick up this bottle and put it down, but I can experience these things. Things like love. These philosophers sit around and say, love seems to be real. Beauty seems to be real. That's ugly. That's beauty. Well, what is that? It's not a physical thing. I mean, it is. It's embodied in a physical thing, but how do I come at it and go, that's beauty and that's ugly? Justice. We talk about justice. I've been talking to justice with you about here in the whole evangelism class. What is it? See, we talk about it, but it's, a th- it's not a physical thing, and yet we know it's real. Nature of man, the human soul. I've been talking about that. We know there's something more to us than just our bodies. Everybody knows it. What is that thing that's transcendent? Making sense? It's something we can't see. It's metaphysical, and these philosophers would recognize it. In our contemporary world, there's a bunch of terms we call this. People say you access this by faith. People call these things values. They're preferences. They're private. You have your subjective feelings. You have your subjective feelings. They're relative. The big one is there's really no knowledge about this. We kind of know they're there, but we don't really have any knowledge to tell us exactly how that thing works. So it's non-rational. It's feely, touchy experience. You with me? It's that experience you have when you watch a movie and it brings tears to your eyes or a song. You're having an experience. How do you explain that? That's transcendence. Now, they looked around the world and there was another circle of knowledge. Okay, one circle of knowledge. Just think blue, right? You saw the screen. That's why I wanted to do the PowerPoint. Green is the imminent things. These are your five senses. These are empirical things, okay? This would be called the lower story, the particulars, okay? There's humanness. There's chairness. Chairness would be a universal. Anywhere I go in the world, I walk in a room, I could go 2,000 years ago, walk into some archaeological dig and go, wow, that's a chair. But yet, particularly, it's a different chair than that chair. Chairness, transcendent, particular chair. Okay? So it's a particular. It's nature. It has lots of diversity to it. Okay? Everyday things, five senses. A man, this podium, this computer, the things we work with. Some of you guys, construction, electro, you're working with real things, imminent. Okay? And in our contemporary world, these ideas are known as reason. You'll see why I bring this up in a minute. Remember, transcendent is known as faith. Imminent is known as reason. It's facts. It's considered objective. It's considered neutral. It's considered public. You can talk about these things in the public. You can't talk about the transcendent because the transcendent are just your subjective feelings. You go to university and you can study reasonable, rational, objective things, but not the subjective. That's just up for you behind your closed doors on Sunday morning when you close the door here and talk about these subjective things. That's how the secular world sees this, by the way. Okay? So the goal, what these philosophers are always trying to figure out, is a knowledge of a unified whole to life. How do you bring the blue circle and the green circle together in one piece of knowledge that has both? Not over here versus over here. Okay, can you nod your head a little bit? You guys tracking with me, please? I want to know you're with me. Okay, because I know this is big stuff. This is the big deal in understanding your secular world. This is why I'm sharing this with you. If you get this, you'll look around the world and you'll go, oh, that's the problem. This is my daughter. She's walking class. Ah, this is their hang-up. Here it is. 
how do you bring the imminent lower story together with one type of knowledge in the upper story, the unified whole of knowledge, okay? How do you bring them together? Now listen, in the age-old dilemma, these are the kind of things they're talking about, the one and the many. The oneness of the universe, but the many, okay? The unity, diversity. Think about this, university. You go to a university. Ever thought about where that word comes from? The idea is, is if you're a thinking person, this is the philosophy, okay? You should be able to study biology, geology, math, the humanities, theology, and it should all fit in one circle. All these diverse things should fit in one unified circle. That's what the university was all about. And in fact, 124 of the original 130 universities in this country started in Christian theology. It's going to give you a clue. I'm tipping my hand to you. There's only one place in the world you can find this unity. Only one place. Transcendent, imminent, upper story, lower story. This is the age-old discussion. So here these guys are, trying to figure this out. Ancient philosophers, geniuses, listen, way smarter than probably every one of us in this room, in all fairness. IQs off the charts. They're trying to figure this out. Now, if you go back to the middle of this painting, I don't know if I can show it there, I can't, but if, if this whole thing is centered with two men right in the middle, underneath that archway. Can you see the two men in the center? It's Plato and Aristotle. And if you could look closely, you'll see Plato on the right has his finger pointing up. He says, I think if we go into that blue circle, the transcendent, we will figure out the unified whole. Aristotle, his hand's pointing down. He says, I think if we go into the green circle in the particulars, we will figure out the unified whole. They're still stuck on two sides. One's over here, one's over here, and they're trying to figure out the unified whole. And guess what? They can't figure it out. They've never figured it out. So you go into history, think of Leonardo da Vinci as just a person, right? 1452, 1519, there he is. You know he died of despondency? He died of depression. He died totally lost. Here's why. He was a genius, if you know anything about da Vinci. Incredible engineering feats. Incredible design. He, he was the one that did these uh, artworks in most of your anatomy books still today. Because he thought, if I could go to the particular, the particular man, and I could understand everything physically about that man, draw every little detail, I can find the unified whole by looking at that particular man, and he couldn't find it. So then he gave up engineering, and he gave up all the mechanics, and he gave up all the imminent knowledge stuff, and he said, I'm going to go over to the other side, and I'm going to become an artist. Feel, sensual, touch. I'm going to paint the gorgeous woman. And it, in there, in the blue circle of feeling, experience, these things we can't put our hands on, but they're real, I'm going to find the unified whole. He died of despondency. He couldn't do it. Hence, the anguish and the innermost tragedy of this universal man divided between his irreconcilable worlds. He couldn't figure out how to bring the two together. That's, he was a genius man. He could see these two, two worlds out there, if you will, these two areas of knowledge, and he's trying to figure out how do you bring it together. So how does our culture think about this, okay? I'm jumping through a bunch of hoops of philosophy, years of stuff, trying to make this simple for you. Okay, think of one cliff on one side with a big chasm and a cliff on the other. Cliff on the left, your green circle, your imminent. Chemistry, biology, all these areas of study. I know the picture's small, but you guys can get the idea of it. Accounting, 
all these things that you access in the public realm by reason. Then on the other side, you got your transcendent ideas, particularly things of God, spiritual, all that stuff over there. You access that, how? By faith. And how does our secular world say to deal with that? A leap. You can't bring them together. They gave up even trying. These genius people said, no, 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 there's got to be an answer. Our society, and I could share with you how it is, they finally gave up and said, we're not even going to try to do it anymore. It's just a leap. It's just a leap of faith. You can have your building over there, and you can do your subjective spiritual stuff all you want. Just stay over there in that area of knowledge. You guys can do that, but it's just subjective, and it's really not real knowledge. It's not the real stuff that we study over here in the university. Tracking with me? That's your world. Now, this came right into your homes and you didn't even know it. Faith versus reason. Okay? 1994. I bet most of you have seen this sooner or later. Cute little story. Miracle on 34th Street. Remember in 1994? Chris Kringle, is he really Santa? Is he not Santa? Right? Okay, now, I wanted to show a clip from a movie this morning. The sound is not coming up here, but let me read it to you. You know the conclusion of that movie? At the movie's climax, it seems that Judge Harper is going to have to, have to uh, commit Chris, uh, Chris Kringle to asylum. Remember, he's trying to decide, is this Chris Kringle or actually really Santa? At that moment, courageous Susan leaves the gallery and walks to the judge's bench and gives him a Christmas card, looking for a miracle that would excuse him of his inevitable decision. Inside the card is a dollar bill. And on the back of the bill, he notices a color marker circled the words, In God We Trust. Okay? Judge Harper stares at this for several beats. Suddenly, he smiles. Deliberately, he takes Chris's commitment papers, scrunches them up, tosses them aside, says, we're not going to need these. This young lady just approached the bench, presented me with this Christmas card, a $1 bill. By presenting me with this bill, she reminded me of the fact that it's issued by the Treasury of the United States, and it's backed by the government and the people of the United States. Upon inspection, you will see, in God we trust. Now, we're not here to prove that God exists, but we are here to prove that a being just as invisible and yet just as present exists. The federal government puts its trust in God. It does so on faith and faith alone. It's the will of the people that guides the government, and it is with their collective faith, doesn't mean if it's real, but collectively they all voted and say, yep, we believe in a greater being that gave and gives this inscription to this bill. Now, if the government of the United States can issue its currency bearing a declaration of God, of trusting God without demanding any evidence of the existence or non-existence of some greater being than the state of New York by similar demonstration of the collective faith of its people can accept and acknowledge that Santa Claus does exist. Cute little movie, Christmas, rated G, you're watching it. It's teaching your kids that there's a difference between faith and reason. It's teaching your kids, take your pick. God's no different than Santa. If a bunch of people believe in it, so be it. Doesn't matter if it's real or not. There you go. Secular worldview and cute movie. Here's, an, here's another one. Great one. Titanic, 1997. Remember this movie? Okay. Real. Okay. Remember what happened in this movie? Rose. She gets to pick a guy. Her first guy is this classical poise, order, temper. Remember, sits around with a cigar and talks to guys about business. Women, you stay over there, right? Secure, traditional, patriarchy, legalism, absolutism, control. She gets to choose that guy, destined to be with that guy. But he's boring, and she's in a prison. There's your choice. Ah! But there's another choice. Romanticism, artist, poet, lawless, individual, risk, fantasy, sensual, passion, license, relativism. 
adventure, freedom. Here's the point. She's given one of two choices. That or that. The green circle or the blue circle. Which one do I want? Welcome to postmodernism. I want the blue circle, whether it makes sense or not. It's how I feel. It's where I'm going. That's the divided field of knowledge that goes back 2,000, or more than 2,000 years with philosophers. It's built right into a movie, and we're watching it. You think it's influencing the way we think? Okay. Now, one quick thing I said in, in a couple of weeks when I come back, we're going to unpack and compare our worldview to a bunch of worldviews. I just want you to see this. So think of the person in the secular world. Your green circle, imminent, five senses, biochemical complex machine, determined DNA, determined the mechanical, right? On the other side, a person, the autonomous free self, realities in your mind, your subjectivity, your desires, your longings, you defi- define your identity. In our world, they don't know how to bring those together. And I've said it a number of times in here because it's so in our face, and I'm not just trying to be obsessed about it, but you see this on full display in our culture with the whole discussion today of men, women, sexuality, people identity. This is why a person with a physical body of a male says, I identify as a female, as a woman, and that's what you need to honor. They're not realizing you can bring the two together. And a whole healthy person is the one that brings both of those together in one place. So what do we have? Complete fragmentation and complete chaos. I just wanted you to see it now. We're going to talk about it again in a couple of weeks. Okay. Here's what's cool. Here's the jazzy part, guys. The coherent, correspondent, unified whole. Is there an answer? Is there anywhere an answer for this center, one unified circle? And here's what the kick is. Listen to this. You know what the ancient philosophers said? They called it if they could find it. They're looking for it. They're looking for it. You know what they called it? Listen. The Logos. I hope that gets your brains, some lights blinking right now. The Logos. They said, if we can find it, it is the Logos. It is the Word. It is the center of everything. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos. It's exactly what John said. He's writing in the Greek, and he says, I'm going to tell you who the Logos is. In the beginning was the Logos, the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Who's the Logos? It's Jesus Christ. Ancient philosophers are trying to figure this out, and God gave it to us. Crazy? Should just jazz your soul as a Christian, like... I've been given the answer to this. You may not fully understand it today, but you've been given the answer. The philosophers have been trying forever to find. Here it is. The Logos showed up and he spoke. (laughs) In real time, in real place, in a real place, a real man showed up and said, excuse me, I'm God. Demonstrated it, died, came back to life. The whole gospel, there it is. In real space, real time, a real cross, real blood, real person, and yet fully God, all at the same time. Can you guys see what I'm getting at, why this is so thrilling? When you get it, when you start going, whoa, wait a minute, like I have the answer. The whole society is jumping from here to jumping to there, trying to figure this out, and you can sit back and be an 18-year-old little girl and go, I get this. Right? So think quickly with me now. we got just a few minutes, and i got enough time to do this. I can't believe I got through all this, but we did. Okay, hang with me. Here's what should thrill you this morning now. Think about it. Revelation, the person. What's God say as a person? God created man in his own image. We already talked about that, right? Excuse me. You form inward parts. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. Remember we asked the question, why dignity? Why this humanity? But why do we do cruel things? What's the Bible tell us? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
We're dignified. We're amazing. We're creating the image of God. We're screwed up. Why are we screwed up? Because of sin. God gives us the answer. Okay? So there's one circle. The man. Fully physical. Fully real body. Remember, Jesus had a real body. At the same time, I'm an eternal soul. I'm an eternal person. All at the same time. When I'm standing before you here, I don't know where all the lines are, but there's something beyond me being physical. There's something spiritual, emotional, experiential that's very real, and it comes together in one person in one place standing right here. And God explains it to me. Revelation. Jesus. Existed in the form of God, did not require to guard equality with God, a thing to be grasped. But in emptying himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made what? In the likeness of men. Second person of the Trinity, eternal being. Didn't have a body in heaven, came to earth, put on a body. And guess what? That eternal, spiritual, metaphysical reality of the universe, the ultimate reality, is in heaven today still with a body. Unified whole. There it is. Jesus. Fully man, fully God. I have the answer. We could keep going, all the categories, man, scriptures. But no, first of all, no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. What are your scriptures? Fully man, real parchment, real pen, real verbs, real adjectives, real man, real writing. At the same time, carried along by the Holy Spirit. Fully physical, fully transcendent, same time. See it? You guys getting it? So the revelation, the reality of the world I live in is a unified whole to knowledge and life. Okay? It's faith and reason. It's not faith or reason. I trust things because it's reasonable to trust them. I use my brain. I don't throw my brain out. But the two come together in one place because we have revelation that gives us that. We have faith, trust, knowledge. You can't hardly see it, but knowledge of the metaphysical. Remember this? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. There's lots of things I don't see, but God explains them to me. I don't have to see them. I don't have to see your soul to know your soul exists because God says it exists. And I sort of see the evidences of it anyway, even though I can't quite put my hand on it. Well, God explains it. Physical world, right? A reason. Knowledge of the physical world. Think of this. What did Jesus do? See my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see, because a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you plainly see I have. Of course I'm God. Of course I'm spiritual. And I'm a man all at the same time. See what we've been given? Now listen, the prophets were speaking. The people have been trying to tell us this forever. And in the last hundred years in our evangelical world, in our world, we don't realize it. This is what I was telling you. I'm not talking about just some moral issue. We've adopted this dualistic way of thinking. And we bring it in into our Christianity accidentally. Not thinking about it. Sorry about that. Um, listen to Martin Luther. If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of truth of God, except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I'm not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing him. If I don't address this head on and say, no, 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 no. When you hear me talking about Christianity, I'm not talking about some, this is my favorite flavor of ice cream, this is my experience, this is subjective. I'm talking about real knowledge, about real facts that fit together with a real world. That's what I'm talking about. That's evangelism. No, 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 no. I'm not asking you just to have a good, a good little feel-good feel kind of cool feeling. 
I'm telling you that you can know the living God who actually exists. And the reason you don't is because your sinfulness. That's why you have a struggle with identity. That's why you're having all these conflicts. If you were reconciled to your heavenly father, the one who created you, he would tell you who you are. There's evangelism. That's the stuff we need to be saying. Look at this. This was Harry Blamires, 1963. I love this guy. He was just before Francis Schaeffer. He has a book called The Christian Mind. If you can find it somewhere, it's a really wonderful little book. How should a Christian think? And he's writing this in the Europe, UK, in the 60s. This development, the development I'm talking about, about this divided field, illustrates what it means to secularize a community. Not by officially denying its religion. Remember, we get to still come here and worship in our religion, but this is what they've done. But by so departmentalizing it, it is deprived of any over-influence. Christianity is emasculated of its intellectual relevance. It remains a vehicle of spirituality and moral guidance at the individual level, perhaps. At the communal level, it is little more than an expression of sentimentalized togetherness. Let's put a bunch of religious people together and let's go down to South Park and let's all pray together. You guys can do that. That's really cool. We'll take pictures of you and put it in the paper. They don't believe it's real knowledge. They don't believe there's anything real there. It's just a nice thing for people to do. That's not my Christianity. You with me? This is, how, this is how the secularized system worked. And this is what I'm getting to that you have to understand. We've done the same thing in our evangelical worlds. We come in and say, oh, no, no, no. I just want to talk about the blue circle. I just want to talk about my Bible and, and enjoy Jesus. We shouldn't talk about these intellectual, philosophical things. We shouldn't do that. We should just stay over here. We shouldn't even be talking about that stuff. The minute that you begin to think that way, you have bought into the secular idea that there's two different areas that can't be brought together. It's really subtle, but we do it. And we start thinking about our spiritual life over here. Well, we can't do that. And you know what we did in the last hundred years? We abandoned the universities. Because we said, we can't go over there. That's all secular. Well, yeah, but the original universities all began with the center circle called theology, university. Christian theology was the center of all the teaching of these universities when they began in the United States. Because it's where you can bring it all together. I should be able to study biology and all these other things and go, oh, 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 I have the answers for you. I have another daughter who graduated from KU with two, two uh, bachelor degrees. It's fascinating. I remember when she said they have this senior seminar. By the way, I'm done in two or three minutes. Hang with me. They have a senior seminar at the end of your education where they kind of try to bring this together. Historically, it was to help you understand the unified field, believe it or not. And she said it's weird because she had one bachelor degree in, the, in psychology, what they would call hard sciences. They're not really. But she had another bachelor degree in the humanities. One technically would kind of fall in the green circle, one would fall in the blue circle. And she had to go to these senior seminars. She said, Dad, it's crazy. She said, the professors in one classroom are saying something completely contrary to the ones in the other classroom. You couldn't put them in the same room and get along. Because they're both trapped in their worlds. They don't realize that you can bring it together. Isn't that, isn't that wonderful? Here's another one of my daughters. Like, she, I see it, Dad. I'm like, there you go. And what did it lead her to? Worship. God's given me the answer. Yep, God gave you the answer. Christianity is not a collection of theological bits and pieces to be believed or debated. Christians should approach their faith as a conceptual system, as a total world and life view. Once people understand that both Christianity and its adversaries in the world of ideas are worldviews, they will be in a better position to judge the relative merits of the total Christian system. For Christians and non-Christians, I'll read a quote to you next week about some of that. We've been given the mind of Christ. That's what I want you to know. It's a sacred gift. When you come to faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes within you, 
He begins to illumine his word, his word and his world, and he begins to literally give you the thoughts of God, the mind of Christ. And in that mind of Christ, we have the power of God and the wisdom of God. This is what he's saying. Listen, Jews were looking for the transcendent signs. Greeks are trying to figure out all this wisdom. We've been given both. The power of God, an actual existential reality experience in worship and in our lives, and at the same time, we've been given a brain to think. All at the same time. <clears throat> Say more. This is a great quote, and I'll leave you with this. This is what worship, a definition of worship from a, a, a thinking theologian. What it, worship is the submission of all of our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by His holiness a nourishment of my mind by his truth, a purifying of my imagination by his beauty. You creatives out there, you guys in the arts and music, you should be the most imaginative, creative people on the planet if you're connected to your creator. Opening of the heart to his love, submission of will to his power, and all of this, all of it, the unified whole is gathered up in adoration as the greatest expression in which we are capable. Worship, explosion, experience, love, beauty, at the same time, a coherent, rational way of thinking about it. All in one place. Praise God. We're done. That's the Christian worldview in contrast to a secular view. And in two weeks when I come back, we're just going to look at all those questions and say, how does the modern world answer that? How does the postmodern? You're going to see a complete contrast to how we answer it. God bless you. See you.